0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: Can we do it? Yes, we can, Prime Minister. And though it is not my business to say so, we must, if we do not, or if we pussyfoot in our actions and do not achieve complete success, in another few months we shall be living in a totally different country whose word will count for little. That, Dominic Sandbrook, was Mrs Thatcher and Sir Henry Leach, the First Sea Lord, debating what to do in the wake of the capture of the Falkland Islands by an Argentine invasion force. Tom, that was an extraordinary performance. That was, um,
0: it wasn't quite on the level of your John Wayne. John Wayne as Genghis Khan that we had the other week, but um,
1: it was up there. Thank you. And th- there will be more to come uh, over the course of this exciting series.
0: Are you going to be doing General Galtieri?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but there will be more Thatcher. Okay, and I'm hoping good. to do an Ian MacDonald as well, who was the Excellent. Um, the Ministry of Defence spokesman. Yeah. <laughs> so, Dominic. Um, yeah. That was a kind of sneak preview of the reaction in London. But before we get to London and how uh, people in the government and the opposition and the media responded to the humiliation of the loss of the Falklands, um, we left it oh, the on, end a of, uh, on a cliffhanger. So <laughs> Rex Hunt holed up in government house yeah. and the Argentines have arrived. So what happens? So there's, there's sort of hours of of, of,
0: of shooting. Um the we left it exactly that with the governor Rex Hunt. Um, he's holed up. He's got his shotgun. Uh, the or he's got a. Uh, uh, his, he's actually got a got a pistol because his driver has got his shotgun, and this, the Royal Marines and they are surrounded. They're about I don't know five ten times as many Argentine soldiers who have just landed um, at the beginning of um, in the early hours of uh, Friday the second of April nineteen eighty two, and basically the Marines are, are completely outnumbered. They don't formally surrender. They don't want to do that. But he orders them in his capacity, basically, as the governor to lay down their weapons to avoid future bloodshed. And then we have this moment. So this is the early hours of Friday morning. And then we have this moment that we had in the first podcast in this series. uh, The Argentines invade the little radio station that is Mm. broadcasting the news to all the people of the Falklands. Um, they then argue among themselves while they're doing that Rex hunt rings the radio station and he says, I'm dreadfully sorry. This has happened you know, very convenient for you, um, but he sort of, he has this, this, there's these wonderful last lines. He says, I'm sorry it's happened this way. This is probably the last message I'll be able to give you, but I wish you all the best of luck and rest assured that the British will be back. And
1: right. of course
0: this sounds like empty bravado, but I think yeah. he means it. Yeah. Um, so about 10 o'clock
1: that morning. Argentine helicopters arrive outside government house. Uh, And and Dominic, could I actually quote Sir Rex Hunt as quoted (laughs) by you in your fabulous book, Who Dares Wins? Um, Out poured a a horde of red-hatted, gold-braided gentlemen who proceeded to hug, kiss and embrace each other in typical (laughs) Latin fashion. So I think you can see there why Sir Rex Hunt was not a top diplomat. No, well, no. Why well, well, he had to be exiled to the, the
0: Falklandians. But he then, but he then, he he behaves very well, Rex Hunt. So he then goes along and he's introduced, he goes to the town hall, the, which is now completely occupied by Argentine troops. And there is General Osvaldo Garcia, who's the commander of the occupying force. And um, Garcia holds out his hand. Rex Hunt describes him as a sallow little man. And um, <laughs> Garcia holds out his hand to hunt, to shake. So the Argentines, who we described in the first podcast as, as being very badly behaved in their own country, sort of electrocuting people and stuff, one of the strange things is they're actually pretty chivalrous. They're very. It's very important to them that they're perceived to be chivalrous mm. by the British. Gentlemen. I thi- yeah.
1: They, they they basically want the British to say, oh, well played. You know, this is a, well, good sport. Be- because Argentina is a country where that idea of the British gentleman still ha- has some currency. It does. It does. Fair Absolutely. play, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yes, exactly. And and there's this
0: extraordinary thing where Garcia holds out his hand, Rex Hunt refuses to, sh- to shake it. And Garcia says, It is very ungentlemanly of you to refuse to shake my hand. And Hunt says, Well, it's very uncivilized of you <laughs> to evade my country. Fair enough. And then Hunt, very impressively, given that he's surrounded by men with automatic weapons, he, he says to this bloke, um, You have landed unlawfully on British territory, and I order you to remove yourselves and your troops forthwith. Which they did. Which they don't do. And they basically put him and his wife, Mavis, um,
1: onto a what uh, about plane. their son? Presumably the son as well.
0: Yeah, I don't know what happened to Tony actually. Um <laughs> he disappears from the story. He's get out, great, out, of, doing untold- his,
1: get out of doing his O levels.
0: Exactly. So but Hunt again, in the sort of nineteen fifties Peter Sellers comedy sort of touch, so they say we're gonna put you on a plane and and fly you out. He insists on getting his ceremonial sword, his hat with ostrich feathers. Yeah. And he has himself Driven to the airport in his red London cab with the Union Jack fluttering, and all the the street, well, all the streets, I mean, the one street is kind of lined with hundreds of um, Falkland Islanders who are kind of clapping and crying and stuff. And he and he and Mavis have flown off into exile. So to Britain to eventually to Britain, yes. Um, so that meeting that you alluded to earlier that had actually happened two days previously. So in London. People had known that this was coming because they'd had intelligence that the Argentine fleet was steaming towards the Falkland Islands. You know, Margaret Thatcher's in the House of Commons. She's asked by John Nott, her defence secretary, to go to his room. He gives her the news. The room starts to fill with people. They're all absolutely ashen. And she says, we have to get these islands back. You know, when the Argentines arrive, we'll have to kick them out. And John Knott says, well, we can't. And actually, the consensus, pretty much the political consensus is we can't. And it's at that moment that the door opens and in comes the first Sea Lord, Sir Henry Leach. He's been inspecting ships. He's just heard the news, so he's still in his, his outfit, and he says that remark that let's you, have a cra- let's have a crack at Johnny R. Yeah, we basically. Well, he ba- it's not quite that, Tom, because it's more melodramatic than that. It's more apocalyptic. He says, "If we don't do it, we'll be living yeah, in a different country whose yeah. word will count for little."
1: Yeah, and, and he and he's the son of a, a commander in the Second World War. Who
0: died on HMS Prince of Wales? Okay, so shot by, sung by, the, Japanese by the Japanese,
1: and in, in, in what was then a, a sort of
0: landmark humiliation. And, and Leach joined the navy as a boy, and all his life, I think, has been you know it's that kind of thing that Once you, redemption yeah, has daydreamed about, yes. and suddenly fate has delivered him a chance to 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 you know avenge his
1: father, prove himself worthy of his father. So he's head of the navy. Yeah. Uh, and do, do the rest of the defense the chiefs of the defense staff do they agree they're all, they're all for it they're, they're all, all for it. it okay and mrs thatcher i mean we haven't really talked about her much
0: partly because all her interest in her her first sort of two and a half years uh, as prime minister all her interest has been in economic reform in, eco- in her harsh economic medicine so you know of course she's a, she's very into the cold war she's very anti-communist all this stuff but you know a war with argentina is the last thing Mm. that has ever been on her mind and it's an extraordinary thing this sort of transformation that happens to her because suddenly she is sort of
1: transfigured into this you know she basically can dress up as
0: winston churchill
1: She's she's as you say, she's been very, very um obsessed with economic matters, um, the kind of the social tensions that her economic policies have, have generated in Britain. But um she she is also a kind of very patriotic uh admirer of Kipling. Um yeah. talks about Winston, all that kind of stuff. Winston. Winston. Yeah. Um so presumably her, her instinct is to say we should do this. She has the chiefs of Defense, who also say y- yes, we can do this, but she's surrounded by Tory grandees, who, as we mentioned in the first episode, all seem to have have won the Military Cross, so are are very brave, are clearly very brave men with experience of military service. But the impression I get is that, by and large, they are less enthusiastic about it.
0: I think they are actually. I think a lot of people. When when her cabinet meet, so that's on the Friday night, so after the news of the invasion the invasion has definitively happened, the cabinet agree to go for it. But I think they go for it much more reluctantly. She is all for it. She absolutely believes from the from the very moment the invasion breaks, she absolutely believes Britain has to do it. You know, it's as though this was the sort of you know Churchill famously, when he became prime minister, said, "You know, all my life I'd been preparation for this trial and all this stuff." I mean, I think there is a bit of Margaret Thatcher that um,
1: failure. Do you remember what Queen Victoria once said? Failure. The possibilities do not
0: exist.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: And and as the conflict goes on, she grows in. She starts to play that part mm. much more and more, sort of self confidently. But you're but you're right that I think. If she had said in that cabinet meeting on the Friday night, well, there are all kinds of reasons why this would be very foolish to send a task force, then I think there had been a lot of people. Quite, quite yeah, relieved. Some people, yeah, I think quite a few of her ministers said, yeah, I'm quite right, Prime Minister. I'm insensible. Let's not overdo this. Let's not escalate. Now, interestingly, the Foreign Office, who she absolutely despises as a kind of nest of appeasers, they send a preliminary assessment that night, the Friday night, that says Britain will not win international backing for using force, the United States will not support us. You know, we won't be able to persuade the British public. It's worth it. It's just complete. And to Mrs. Thatcher, she's like, what was the alternative? That a common or garden dictator should rule over the Queen's subjects and prevail by fraud and violence, not
1: while I was prime minister. So she sa- she's saying that before the yeah. debate that is called for the first time in many, many years Sincere. on a Saturday since Sue is well well that's yeah. a kind of telling isn't it so Very the telling. great humiliation and the and the House of Commons is summoned on a Saturday to debate yeah. what seems to be another catastrophic British humiliation and I think and I remember it vividly I remember it yeah. vividly because we were uh, trying to set up a cricket net in our garden oh, and God. our garden wasn't really big enough to fit Tom, it your life is beyond parody I mean <laughs> <laughs> I know I know so uh It was kind of tricky. We had to kind of work out the angle so we could just about squeeze it in. Involved going up a hill and things. It wasn't. It wasn't very effective. But um, I remember while we were struggling with the nets and the poles and everything, listening to the debate, and it was my first experience of um, of listening to listening to a debate in Parliament. And it couldn't have been more dramatic. Of course, because when she goes, people think she's going. She could fall. She could be toast. Because it is humiliating. Yeah, it's it's a humiliation.
0: It's and she's answerable for it. Yeah, absolutely. It happened on her watch. Intelligence failure happened. Um, Now, you know, how much is she personally responsible? Well, not really. Well, the buck Uh, stops with with the Prime Minister. the buck stops with the Prime Minister. Absolutely. So in other words, had she been in opposition and had it happened to James Callaghan or Michael Foote, she would have been the first to lead the prosecution. So it's completely reasonable that she takes the blame. Um, She gives, at first, quite a a tentative performance because she knows that she's going to get a lot of flack. The press that morning is awful for the government says Mm -hmm. you know this is the worst humiliation in british history but there's also right away an absolute sense in the press we you know this is world war ii we have to fight i mean the express i always think the the express had a front page which in a weird way i mean this probably says a lot about me that i've always found quite moving which is that they had the whole front page was a, a photograph taken a few years earlier they'd for some thing some feature They'd managed to get every single Falkland Islander on the lawn outside Government House, and they're all waving Union Jacks and looking up and they're being photographed from above. And so the Express ran that picture again on its full on its front page with the um the headline Our loyal subjects, we
1: must defend them. <laughs> right. <And> this- <laughs> so, right. So so um the the Foreign Office had said public opinion won't be in favor of a task force and straight uh, away public opinion and, and, and straight away public opinion is kind of swinging behind it. Now the other key constituency of course is the opposition yeah. and the opposition is led by Michael Foote who is um very distinguished political, cultural, literary figure, um, mm-hmm. wrote wonderful books on Byron and um, Jonathan Swift, Hazlitt and Swift and all kinds of things. Very, very civilized man. Um He had, he, he he's definitely on the 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 left of the party and so it it's it's not immediately obvious that he is going to swing behind demands for the Falklands to be taken back but no, he does I, but he does well, and and he has this wonderful phrase you quote from him i know a fascist when i see one because yeah. as a young man he had been very opposed to to appeasement hadn't he
0: yeah he'd made his name with the pamphlet guilty men attacking
1: the appeasers in the late
0: 1930s and he's very anti he sees himself as very anti-fascist so michael foote gives this mrs thatcher gives a tentative speech michael Foot gives this absolutely blazing speech um you know he says the Falklanders have been have been faced with an act of naked unqualified aggression carried out in the most shameful and disreputable circumstances they have the absolute right to look to us at this moment of their desperate plight just as they have looked to us for the past 150 years all this kind of thing yeah. and the tories Love it. They're I mean they're all cheering. Everybody's cheering. Some of his well, own but
1: but not, not everybody, right? <laughs> no, because, I know what you Because there saying. are people on the well, there are two famous figures on the left who are opposed to it. The first, <laughs> the, f- the first not And it will not surprise <laughs> anyone is a, 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 an obscure left wing MP from Islington called Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, 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 right.
0: No, he's not MP yet. He's not an MP yet. He's I th- he's about to be adopted as the as Labour's okay.
1: candidate in Islington. And yeah. he 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 condemns Foote as a kind of arrant imperialist uh, yeah. and and dismisses the whole idea of sending a task force as a Tory plot to keep their money-making friends in business. But of course the the um the standard bearer of the left um in opposition to Foot is Tony Benn. Yes, yeah, Tony Benn. And and Tony Benn comes out very um very much against it. Michael's but, an absolute <laughs> warmonger. But what I learned from your book is that in 1976, when Ben himself had been in government, he uh, he wondered what would happen in the event of an Argentine invasion. And he said the total spinelessness of the Foreign Office and the general decay of Britain would prevent it being taken back. So yeah. that's quite a swing in uh It in is, perspective. exactly. So what's going on there? Why is he... Uh well Tony Ben is on this sort of conveyor
0: belt that is moving him ever leftwards. So that's so that um, is
1: that, that it's not the reflection of the fact that he's Oh, but it is uh, also uh, the reflection of the fact, yeah. Uh, 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 okay, so there's a slight degree of hypocrisy, but it I, is also reflected that he's moving further to the left. I think there's a there is a bit of a degree of hypocrisy actually. I know I know some listeners
0: may be great Tony Ben fans. You know, Tony Ben gets a lot of stick at this point from other people, by the way, on the left of the Labour Party. So Eric Heffer, for example, who's one of his mm. who ought to be one of his allies, says basically these people say to him what is wrong with you can you not see that the argentines are are, are, by our lights we see them as fascists what we should be absolutely against them um and somebody says you know if if we carry on with your we'll be known as the munich party and all this kind of stuff so yeah i mean certainly (laughs) what you have and we can get into this maybe later on when we talk about the public and the press is you have clearly a division which was also there at suez actually going back to what you were saying about the saturday meeting of the house of commons between that part of the labour co- coalition that is kind of working class labour voters set up nato yeah yeah and then on the other hand you have the high minded yeah. you know um people who live in leafy you know yeah. university towns so- who are horrified
1: by the thought of of going, the, the very idea of going to war with anybody Right, is, is and, so, and, and and so they're not just in the Labour Party, are they? They're also so we've got. We, you mentioned the um, the SDP and, yeah, and t- the I Liberals. Guess. So they are. Um, they've they've come together in an alliance. They they seem to be knocking huge chunks out of both the Tories and Labour, and they're led by Roy Jenkins. Yeah. Who um Have you got a nice quote about Roy Jenkins? <laughs> I do. I do. I do which I have lifted again from your book and this is by um Parliamentary Sketch Writer called Frank Johnson. Brilliant writer. Every parliamentary sketch writer I know kind of I, I think Tim Stanley who telegraphed, uh, Telegraph currently yeah. the Telegraph sketch writer described him as the Mozart of parliamentary sketch writers and he he um he he describes Roy, Roy Jenkins as um a one man Switzerland as prosperous comfortable civilized and almost entirely landlocked his only previous contact with the high seas had been in various good fish restaurants yeah i think that's and and obviously he you know in a slightly different way to tony ben but he also is you know he's not suited to nelsonian exploits and the waving of union jacks and things
0: no absolutely not and i think so what you have there is a Jenkins, Roy Jenkins, who was a colossal figure in the imagination of the nineteen seventies and nineteen early nineteen eighties, because he's the absolute incarnation of kind of metropolitan um liberalism and uh civilized, not 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 sort of capital L left wing, but kind of mildly center left, good yeah. chaps, fine wines. Restaurants in Brussels. Kind kind of,
1: kind of, um, remainers, civilized, metropolitan remainers. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely.
0: He thinks this is backward. You know, it's atavist, it's primitive atavism to be fighting a war over faraway islands, to be waving the flag, to be sending fleets. He's utterly, it's vulgar. He's he's completely uncomfortable with it. And there are people within his own party, the SDP. So, British listeners, some of them will know David Owen, for example. Um, former was, Foreign Secretary yeah, for, for who, who Yeah, who is all for the Falklands War. He thinks, you know, go for it, embrace well, it. So David it's O'Reilly's what the kind public blue, wants. blue Labour,
1: wasn't he? I mean, yeah, that's the division.
0: So suddenly, Mrs Thatcher, I mean, Michael Foote has let her off the hook in the, in the House of Commons, by the way, on the Saturday. By, by attacking the Argentines, really, rather than the government's intelligence failure, he's given her a bit of an opportunity. But it's clear that people, I mean, this is not a top-down thing at all. The public are not brainwashed. They're not yeah, led. They're, they're pushing for it. The public, I mean, instantly you see it on the ground that um, in, in diaries, in, in in actually the turnout at the docks when the task force leave. Um, so the, that weekend, the task force are already mobilizing for war. They're already, you know, trucks piling into kind of Portsmouth and Southampton with equipment, people being recalled, all the ships being requisitioned. And, and when they leave the 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 key sides are packed go, with wives people. and girlfriends kissing yeah. and yeah yeah people ordinary people they're waving flags and crying and singing yeah. patriotic songs and and all this sort of stuff i mean this and so takes, the task force
1: does go and, yeah. and there are enough ships you know this this has happened presumably before the cuts have, have bitten so we do the british we i'm turning to the bbc the yeah. british <laughs> yeah uh, the british do have enough ships to send a credible naval force Yes, uh, yes. So, so these these are destroyers and aircraft carriers, but also requisitioned uh, ferries that are carrying the, the troops. Well, cruise ships. So basically cruise the two ships, biggest yeah. – So you've got two aircraft
0: carriers that go, which are Hermes and Invincible, the two aircraft carriers that John Nott had wanted to scrap, and then they requisition the Canberra, which is, I think, a P&O liner, and they're going to put on – the Canberra is going to have the Vanguard, which is called Three Commando Brigade, which has got um, three Royal Marine Battalions and two paratrooper battalions. Um, so that's about three to four thousand men, and they're going to be taken on the camera. So you have, but you've also got all these support ships. So you know, it's a, it's it's a sort of fleet. It's a D-Day style fleet because the logistics obviously are the Falklands are in the middle of nowhere. You have to take everything with you. Yeah, so there's this huge armada. Well, there is. There's Ascension Island, isn't there,
1: in the middle of yeah
0: the Atlantic. So Ascension so Island is in the middle of the Atlantic. Yeah, so, that's so that British. Will, that will but it has an part. American
1: base on it. We've leased a base. Yeah. So the we need the Americans on side. Right. So so the task force sets off. Um, there's there's a kind of growing sense of uh, patriotism, uh, and I guess that um, some people would say jingoism, and that sense of the of a division. I mean, it's not as strong as you get, say, with the Brexit vote. But there are certain kind of parallels there, I guess. Oh, definitely,
0: definitely. that are
1: definitely. expressed through a wonderful collection of um, essays by by Britain's by Britain's writers, um, and so um, Polly Toynbee, the, uh, yeah. the the Guardian columnist, and Margaret Drabble. Uh, the, Hampstead novelist and Salman Rushdie, of course. It's uh, called Authors Take Sides on the Falklands. Yeah. It? it was done so in the imitation all of it. one from the Spanish Civil War. So they're all they're, they're all against the task force. Oh, it's brilliant. Actually. But my, my favourite one that you quote is um Gilly Cooper, uh, yeah. author of Bonkbuster novels. Um she, so she writes after this. she clearly sends her contribution in late because the war looks like it's already happened. So <laughs> I have to confess, some of these Argentinian officers are so frightfully good looking, one might almost enjoy being taken prisoner by them.
0: Yeah, of course. So that's
1: that's her take on it.
0: But all the others that you mentioned, like Rushdie, Polly Toynbee, um Margaret that they—I they, they, mean, it's not just that they're against it, Tom. It's it, it, and this is how it does preview the Brexit argument. It is that they think they find it utterly unthinkable, it's, and it's embarrassing and vulgar. Yeah. But it also turns on their head, on its on 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 its head, everything they had thought about what Britain was, and they had thought that. Britain had turned its back on this sort of stuff.
1: You've got this fabulous quote, again, in your book from Jonathan Raban, fabulous travel writer. Um, I'd heard Britain talking in a dream, he says, after watching the, the task force set sail and what it was saying scared me stiff. Yeah. Although part of, part of the reason I think why he's scared stiff is that he actually finds
0: himself moved by it, doesn't he? I think that's what's so brilliant. So do you know the brilliant thing about the Falklands from a historian's point of view is that that spring, two different Brilliant travel writers that had the same idea. Paul Thoreau was one and Jonathan Rabin was the other. And they both had the idea of, of sailing around the coast of the island of Great Britain and kind of and, and dropping in at kind of seaside towns and writing about, I guess largely for an American audience, about what they found. And I think they both thought of this idea independently as Britain is a declining nation. You know, it'll be old pensioners moaning about inflation and stuff and the empire having gone. And they both set off on sort of different routes and the war breaks out while they're doing it. So, and the most amazing uh, Jonathan Raymond's book is called sailing. And there's this, as you, I'm I'm so glad you mentioned this because it's an amazing section where he talks about watching, he's on his boat and he's watching the task force sailing on a little sort of black and white telly or something. And he's, and he, and he, he He thinks his brain thinks it's ridiculous, we shouldn't be doing this, but his then heart he notices is going <laughs> yeah, and then he notices that 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 he's crying you know with with emotion at the sort of the the anthem singing and all that sort of stuff, um yeah, and I think uh you're absolutely right that there's there's a very much a kind of brexit ish. Yeah, divide. Although it's different because in this case, it's about much larger. Eighty percent of the public are yeah. all for it, and the polls suggest that. I think the most amazing polls say that four out of ten people wanted Britain to just start bombing Argentina straight away, and two out of ten people thought Britain should invade Argentina. <laughs> itself. Yeah. yeah, so you know, so, the so, public. So that's, are,
1: that's the Aaron yeah. Banks equivalent of. <laughs> exactly okay we should um i think take a break at this point and when we come back as as the task force steams its way across the atlantic let's look at the international context uh because that becomes very important okay
0: this episode is brought to you by better help now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time
1: don't we but the question is time for what if time was unlimited. How would you use it? Well, Dominic, you'll know that uh, my great love is cricket and cricket is a sport that notoriously takes up a lot of time. So imagine if I had even more time, just how brilliant I would be. And I've worked out that the best way to squeeze things into your schedule is to know what's really important to you so that you can make it a priority. Well, Tom, therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide
0: you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities, so you'll know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable
1: online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash history today to get
0: 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp betterhelp.com slash history.
1: Hello. Welcome back to The Rest is History. We are in the heart of the Falklands War now. The task force has set sail. uh, And of course, this is very much an international conflict. I mean, I think people around the world, governments around the world, are looking (laughs) in a certain degree of perplexity as Britain (laughs) launches what seems, well, I mean, it is basically a colonial war. And within Britain, Dominic, the context for this is that um, John Knott has stayed in position, but Lord Carrington has resigned. Is that right? That's right. John Knott wanted
0: to resign, but Mrs. Thatcher wouldn't let him. And he really resented that because he thought it so made John him. So, John Knott's the defense secretary. Sh- we, but we the foreign say. secretary, Lord Carrington, who ironically was the one person who had foreseen the invasion and said, we have to be, you know, we have to watch out for this, he nevertheless, because he's out of this sort of sense of honor, he, he falls on his sword. Um, so, it is a very honorable thing. And to
1: so, know. he gets replaced by Francis Pym. Who Mrs. Thatcher hates. But he's a, hates who's him. another war hero, right? Who is, indeed, yes. But he looks, he's a kind of. He's one of those slimy looking Tory Atonians. <laughs> well they're all they're all pretty slimy looking. No, but he, I, I, he he looks yeah. particularly slimy. He's, he's got he's, shares he's, in
0: Brill Cream clearly. He, I mean he, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: and he is um I mean he's the likeliest to succeed Thatcher if she falls yes, probably. Um, yeah. So so she's a bit twitchy about having having Absolutely. him on board. Yeah. And also he's a little bit wetter.
0: Than, he is a bit than, wetter
1: than Thatcher or not. Although, although Tom, her reputation in
0: this regard is, is, is massively caricatured. You see, the, the, the common image, we can, we can get later into the, um, and a, probably a subsequent episode, about the electoral impact of all this. But the image of Mrs. Thatcher that she herself colluded in, the Iron Lady image, mm-hmm. um, unbending, determined, bent on war. You know, we, we will not talk, we will fight, all this sort of idea is utterly at variance with the documentary record, with the archival reality. Well, Well, it's very clear that from the beginning, she was open to compromise, that the British government was open to compromise and was actually very keen on the idea of compromise. Now, they didn't want to admit this later on because particularly when the war was won, all mention of this was basically banished. But, so right away, it's obvious that Britain cannot succeed without international support. So the first thing they do, which is really smart, is straight away the first weekend, the Britain's ambassador to the United Nations, Sir Anthony Parsons, gets the Security Council to approve a resolution. I think it's five hundred two um, that they want the Argentines to withdraw from the islands, and that
1: passes. And that passes because you doesn't say, the, you- the, the, the the Soviet ambassador says to Anthony Parsons, <laughs> "You deserve the Garter for that." Yeah, exactly. Does very, very, very
0: good. Um, uh, nice thing for the Soviet. Empire. So the Soviet Union abstains because they hate Argentina and Britain equally, yeah. uh, as do China. So the resolution passes. Now, the amazing thing about this is the Argentine regime, the Galtieri regime, which we talked about in the last episode, is so incompetent. They haven't really planned for the aftermath at all. I think because they just think Britain will accept it as a fait accompli. So they've lined up no diplomatic support. They have nothing. They have no real case. They are just utterly passive. So the British get this UN resolution. So the
1: British have the UN. Right. But, and, and there are three key countries, three yeah key countries in this drama. The first we mentioned in the first episode, which is Argentina's bitterest enemy, Chile. <laughs> yeah. And so Chile, Chile's kind of readiness to help Britain, is that on the basis of, you know, hatred of Argentina. My enemy's
0: enemy is my friend. Exactly. Yeah. So the Chileans, so there were, there were, sort of economic links between the Thatcher government and the Pinochet government because they're obviously both embarked on monetarist um, experiments. So their particular
1: style of kind of economic reform. But, but the Pinochet government is also into the whole kind of attaching electrodes to Absolutely. folk singers and very, yeah, they're very, poets and things. They're
0: very keen, yes. They, they're very keen on, um, on on domestic repression. But, you know, the British government has no problem with that because they're our Cold War allies. That's how they perceive it. And um, the Chileans basically say, we'll give you our intelligence. We'll allow you to base, you know, the the RAF can have a sort of informal use of a Chilean um, base. I think they just use that for surveillance and stuff. Um, So, you know, everything that we know you can have, any kind of logistical support. It can't be done publicly because it breaks the kind of code of South American solidarity, but you know we'll we'll give you. Whatever. And so,
1: looking looking very very far ahead, that's why when uh, Pinochet gets exiled and comes to Britain, Mrs. Thatcher goes for tea with him. Yeah, when he's when he's, he's put yeah. under exactly. Yeah. Okay, oh. so 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 that's the, the context for that. The general was very staunch, Tom. Right. So 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 even that. I mean, you know, even though it's a crucial part of the British propaganda effort to point out that Argentina is a repressive, fascistic, yeah. uh, military junta. When it comes to Chile, they're our repressive, yeah. fascistic military. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, right. I mean, to be okay. fair, just
0: on the Argentines. So the Argentines, another one of the things that they they're completely inept at public relations. So the guy they've got commanding their troops in South Georgia is a man called I think his name is Alfredo Astiz. A lieutenant and his, his nickname is the blonde angel of death.
1: Yeah, that's not good. Of, because that's not of his good, record
0: of murdering nuns. So I think um right. he's probably not the person that the Argentines from a PR no. point of view should have had no. in charge
1: of that that part of the operation.
0: Anyway, sorry tom I'll Okay, so here. so
1: that's Chile. Yeah. Um and then there's another country led by um the man who Mrs. Thatcher described as the staunchest of our friends. and nobody was. And, uh, and and regular listeners who have heard your opinion on the country that this man led, may be surprised to learn the identity of this man. And it was none other than President François Mitterrand. The French were very staunch, Tom. Um, so good Mitter- to hear that. Mitterrand, Mitterrand,
0: Mitterrand rang Mrs Thatcher. He was the first foreign leader to ring her. And he basically said to her, France is with you. We will give you everything you need. You will have our unstinting support. And he meant it. And do you think, uh, why is that? Oh, it's because France can't have regimes nicking taking, islands, nicking islands. Yeah, <laughs> nicking colonial. Yeah, they, they've, they've got, got loads that, of them.
1: Is that basically the reason then? I think it's, pretty
0: much the reason. It's also yes, I think it is pretty much. The they reason. might lose Guadeloupe, or right. I think. Yeah. Um, so, so what has happened is that uh, the French ha- are one of the biggest military providers to Argentina. So they so have provided them Exocet, Exocet missiles, missile. and Super Etendard um, planes. So battle standard planes, I suppose you would call super battle standard planes. And um Mitteron says basically we'll give you all the specs on all the stuff we've sold to Argentina, so you'll know exactly how they work and all that stuff. And we will not sell any more obviously not to Argentina, but we also won't we've got a deal lined up with Peru, and we will suspend that because the Peruvians might give some to Argentina. Yeah. So that's an unusual case actually of, you know, a sort of European competitor basically saying, we will put our friendship with you above our own commercial self-interest. It's very striking. Mrs. Thatcher was always incredibly, even though she still kind of gave Mitterrand a handbagging at European summits, she was incredibly grateful to Mitterrand for this. Mm. But again, the weird thing is it, it wasn't massively publicized and the British public just didn't want to believe it, so it didn't enter into the imagination at all. But she,
1: she, Mitterrand was quite keen on her, wasn't she? The, oh, no. the eyes
0: it, of Kugler and the mouth of Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, was he was. Famous. He was, and she was very keen on him. She liked Mitterrand. She liked. So she didn't mind. You know, people's politics was a, irrelevant in some ways. The more lounge lizard like they were, <laughs> yes. the more Mitterrand yes. liked them. Yes. yes. So you know, yeah. Mitterrand loves him. Reagan loves him. Helmut Kohl, who's no, poly, you know, sausage eater. Yes. Yeah, absolutely not. <laughs>
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So well you mentioned Reagan. So Reagan is obviously the United States is obviously probably the most important. Yeah, it is the most and important. And the United States, in its response to the Falklands War, is split. It because is. Britain is America's closest ally in NATO, but Argentina is a kind of key bulwark of democracy, as it's seen, even though it's a fascistic dictatorship. Yeah. Um and the the, the the figure who is the American figure who is keenest on backing Argentina over Britain is Gene Fitzpatrick. Kirkpatrick Kirkpatrick sorry who is the ambassador to the UN the US well, ambassador well yes exactly so she's a kind of neoconservative uh jean kirkpatrick was famous
0: because she's a very strong anti-communist and she had written a big sort of thesis about the difference between totalitarian and authoritarian dictatorships and she said yeah, authoritarian, yeah, authoritarian yeah. dictatorships absolutely splendid. Uh totalitarian dictatorships are terrible. And we should back Argentina in this dispute. South America is very important to us. Um the British are kind of yesterday's men. Who cares mm-hmm. about them? And she is basically, you know, shouted down by the rest of the Reagan administration. His defence his secretary of defense, Caspar Weinberger, very pro-British, basically says He to ends up stuff, getting a knighthood, right? He does. And he basically says to the people at the Pentagon, give the Brits whatever you want, whatever they want um Reagan you know Reagan is sort of on the fence because he's having to to sort of uh, referee these competing factions within the administration but Reagan's heart is very pro british you know he he wants to back the british and when he finally does get off the fence he he's actually pretty pretty but,
1: kind but of... he's sit- he's sitting on the fence while um his uh, secretary of state al haig yeah. is jetting from Washington to London to Buenos Aires, this way and it that, is. trying to patch up uh, some kind of compromise. And this is the context for what you were saying about Mrs. Thatcher not being as dogmatically set on war as I, – because I guess subsequently every side has an interest in portraying her like that. You yeah. know, she does because it casts her as the Iron Lady. Her enemies, her opponents can because it casts her as kind of uncaring and inflexible. But actually, she is more open to negotiation than the myth would suggest. Yeah, that that's right? absolutely
0: right. I mean, Al Haig is a man with the ego the size of the moon. And he basically says, um, I will I will personally ensure there is no war. And he does this subtle diplomacy, like his old boss, Henry Kissinger, had done in the 70s. Um, and he comes to Britain, and the, he, he basically can get a deal with the British. And the deal is that um, both sides will withdraw. So the British will agree not to send their fleet too close to the Falklands. The Argentines will withdraw their troops, and then the the islands. I mean, there are various iterations of this deal, but basically, the islands will be administered for the time being by a kind of international condominium. Different powers, maybe Britain and Argentina, two of them. Uh, and and in that for the next two years, and in that time, they'll come to a deal on the sovereignty of the islands. Almost certainly, I think Tom that deal would have involved Argentine, Argentina getting the sovereignty, because I can't see there's any other compromise. That, that, that they could possibly have accepted. And the, the really remarkable thing is that, for example, the 14th of April, Mrs. Thatcher tells her cabinet, we have to accept Hague's deal. You know, we can't, we, we have to compromise. And this is not the first time she does this, by the way. Um, And and it's, you know, again, this is, as you said, it's not well known. Mrs. Thatcher herself doesn't trumpet this later on, so it gets forgotten. So did she
1: talk about it in her memoirs?
0: She does, but she talks about it in a very a evasive ev- yeah, yeah. shadowy way. Yeah. It's shadowy way. Um Haig takes the deal, he goes off to Buenos Aires, and the Argentines say no. And this is the interesting thing, because Brit- you know, Britain can be seen to compromise. It's very embarrassing for Mrs. Thatcher. It would have it would have robbed her of that sort of romantic, patriotic role that she was. Yeah, Elizabeth play. I at Tilbury. Elizabeth I at Tilbury, exactly. Yeah. Or sort of Boudicca. But she could have done it. She could have said, "We we compromised and we avoided a war." It's absolutely impossible for the Argentines to compromise because all they have is nationalism in their locker. Um, you know, they've sent to send their troops and then have to withdraw their troops after they've had crowds on the streets of Buenos Aires cheering and waving Argentine flags it would be humiliating for them, mm. and um, they're completely intransigent. Haig says to them. I mean, Haig says to them at one point, if you'll forgive my language, he says to his aides, the whole thing is a charade, a fucking charade. These guys are diddling me. This is about Argentina. And then he basically says to Galtieri, we know exactly what he says. He says in the final meeting, within a matter of days, the British fleet will be upon you. Those forces are capable of inflicting severe damage on yours. I don't for one moment question Argentine courage, but it cannot prevent your systematic defeat by sophisticated British surface, subsurface and air power. Blah, blah, blah. The British will not bear the onus because you were the first to use force and they made a reasonable effort to reach a peaceful settlement. There is no escaping the historical responsibility for what now seems inevitable. He says this to Galtieri. Galtieri still says, mm. no, because the Argentines also just have it in mind that the British will crumble because of the weather. That they'll lose some ships, that they'll be able to,
1: and all do you the think, time. And do you think what's their take on Mrs. Thatcher? Do they feel because she's a woman, therefore I'm sure do that do they feel yeah. kind of threatened by her? That well, you know, they, they don't want to, or do they think you know she'll burst into tears and I run suspect, away? Or you I, know,
0: Argentina is not a country in sort of 70s, 80s. Argentina is no, not it's a not a feminist renowned for stronghold. its sort of progressive gender politics, and I think particularly in the army, and I think. um undoubtedly they would despise her because she's a woman they despise britain for having a woman leader and they see that as part of a sort yeah. of enfeeblement but also they in the argentine press they present it always as oh, you ever see these these covers of these magazines tom they're amazing they always portray her with an eye patch as a pirate <laughs> and there's a brilliant um i can't remember what the uh, periodical is but we reproduced it in my book who dares wins in color um it has uh, a, a picture of Mrs. Thatcher, and it says um, "pirata bruja yeah. Ass- Assassina. yeah, um, pirate- culpable, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> guilty, yeah, Pir-
1: pirate, witch, and assassin. And they, oh, they- well, I- I'm looking at them now. Um, so that yeah, there's one where it's a photo of her, and they photoshopped on um, a- an eye patch. But there's one as a fabulous drawing of her, looking very, very kind of haggard and crone-like, almost with a pirate's. Kind of hat on, and she's, she's got a fingering a sword. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's got a pirate's hat with a skull and crossbones. <laughs> yeah, on. that's yeah. brilliant. Well, we must, I must try and put that on the. You should um, do, yeah, on on the tweet advertising this. That's that's excellent. But Dominic, something that you say in the book, the fact that Missus Thatcher was not a man proved an enormous asset. So, what what do you mean by that? So, that's in the context of the British cabinet, is it? So, the way she
0: normally handles her um her business is she's incredibly interfering and bossy, and basically thinks she knows everybody else's business better than theirs. But this is the one thing that she knows nothing at all about and nobody expects her to know about it. So she doesn't have a chip on her shoulder about it. In a funny, You know, no one could possibly expect her to know about tanks and, and planes and submarines. But she, she and... gets rather rather keen on military men. She loves military men. She loves listening to them. She doesn't feel she has to compete with them as she does with economists or with her own, particularly her own ministers who she loves to bully. So, for once i think in her entire career in government she's actually everybody says she listens you know she takes advice she's she's very sensible she doesn't ever interfere she just lets us get on with it she gives us clear answers i mean all the people who worked with her all the military men who often many of them had previously absolutely despised her um they say oh she was a dream to work with you know very okay. decisive and let us get on with it now had she been a the other thing is i suppose you could say had she been a man with experience of war, like so many of they all knew, I mean, they said, we know what can go wrong. Mm. She didn't. And that meant that she was ready to go for it. And so ready that-
1: to trust men in braid. Oh, and she loved fancy men hats. in braids. Yeah, she loved them. When they say, yes, we can do this. And Dominic, to be fair, um, it, it, it does go well. So the, the task force does reach the south atlantic after what nine weeks is it no it's it's three weeks
0: oh three Um, weeks that long well well shorter time well no it's it's, um henry leach had said to her she said how long will it take to get ready the the task force he said it'll take three days and she said how long to get to the falklands and he said three weeks she said you mean three days and he said "No, no 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 i mean three weeks like it takes ages to get to the falklands um so they sail at the beginning of april they get to ascension island on the 19th of april um, they don't land until towards the end of May. So, is it? So, actually, Tom, you were right. Actually, it's a very, very long, protracted. I mean, they they sort of they have to allow time for the diplomatic process to play out and for everybody right. to catch up in the fleet. So, it's a, yeah. it's weeks. So, for weeks, actually, nothing really is happening. The task force is just. It's a ten week campaign, all in all. But for most of that time, the task force is just kind of ploughing through the waves. So, it's a bit like a test match
1: kind so. of long periods and then sudden explosive action.
0: Well, except that there's no action at all to start with, because basically all that's happening is these blokes are on the ships, sunbathing, and they're just sort of limbering up. But it all doesn't, at that point, it doesn't really seem real. So a lot of the soldiers are saying, well, you know, are we actually going to any fighting? Will we get back in time for the World Cup, which is
1: happening in Spain that summer? But Dominic, one thing that does happen is we mentioned South Georgia in the first episode. Scrap where metal. The scrap metal behaved disgracefully by barbecuing a reindeer. Um, and this is, this is the first clash between British and Argentine forces and it's, it's a total British victory, right? Well, although it's a bit more dramatic than that, Tom. So a few helicopters go yeah. blown up and things. So,
0: um, I think I said before the 16th of April, the first aircraft carriers got to Ascension Island. And at that point there are 127 ships in the fleet. So it's a bloody big fleet. Um, and there's about 10,000 men. And when they, when they get to Ascension Island, they, they divide off. 150 royal marines and 70 men from the SAS and they're basically going to go off to south georgia which is you know as we said before hundreds of miles away from the falkland islands it's really important that the government gets an early sort of for, an early victory but south georgia you know it's practically it's you're virtually in antarctica or you're getting on the way to antarctica so when the first helicopters go 21st of april um they drop these blokes they're on a glacier their tents blow away it's kind of Shackleton, the terror yeah. style kind of yes, freezing monsters,
1: freezing, <laughs> lurching up out of freezing conditions. In the yeah. Basically
0: they, the, most of the tents are blown away. There's got about a couple of tents left and they're all, some of the men are in the tents and the other men are trying to shovel snow away and it's just awful. And they basically have to radio and say, come and get us. This isn't going to work at all. The helicopters then crash. Mrs. Thatcher gets the news. The helicopters crash and she thinks the men are dead. So she bursts into, you know, she starts crying um, you know, it's the first moment of casual, it's the first operation, really of the war and it's all gone wrong. And then she gets the news that a third helicopter has got there and got them out. And she's absolutely on cloud nine. And I think that that's a real psychological turning point for her because that really emboldens her. Um, in future, she's going to be much less keen on peace. She starts to identify with the men and they're slightly sort our of our boys. Yeah. Our boys, our brave boys, our lads, all that sort of stuff from yeah. that point onwards. Then on the twenty fifth, which is a Sunday, Mrs. Thatcher's at checkers, and she gets the news that um, they're going to start try the operation again. This time, it all goes absolutely splendidly. They they attack an Argentine submarine, which is at uh, South Georgia called the Santa Fe, and they cripple it. Um, the they, The British commandos kind of uh, arrive. The Argentines don't even fire a shot. They just basically give up completely straight away. The scrap metal. So they, they conscripts. Yeah, they are. They're. I mean, almost all the Argentine. I mean, there are obviously some professional troops, but a large proportion of their troops in the Argentine army. Because you, if you a conscript,
1: you wouldn't want to take on the SAS, would you?
0: No, I mean, these are storm. these are very I mean, young guys. I mean, boys basically from Buenos Aires who are in this freezing place. They've no idea where they are. Bloody awful. There's a lot yeah. of scrap metal dealers. <laughs> yeah. um, and suddenly, the SAS pitch up. Yeah, so they're, to, they're, they're they, Yeah. So they surrender. And um, so that night, there is this incredibly dramatic moment. Are you going to give us a rendition of that, Tom, or is, is that... Uh... No,
1: I'm not. I, th- I think we're going to stop at this point. Oh, no, that is a cliffhanger. So that's a cliffhanger. So um, A lot of people won't be able to sleep. They won't be able to sleep <laughs> with excitement. <laughs> well, in that case, they'll have to join the uh, the members club, won't they? Very good. The rest is historypod.com. We will kick off with my sensational impression of Mrs. Thatcher's response to the triumph at South Georgia, uh, and then we will look at... The task force moving in the Falklands, the sinking of the Belgrano, the sinking of HMS Sheffield, the press reaction in Britain, which is extraordinary. Um, And then how Britain ends up taking the Falklands back. Hasta luego. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes... Early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest Is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast Walking the Dog where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond and you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland and yes I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount in fact There are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest Is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoiled dog in history, maybe.